you know, COO for me often has responsibility for a number of different bits of the organization, you know, in terms of the back office stuff. But I think for me, a, a really good COO is somebody who really binds the organization together, the kind of the glue that makes it work. And I think for me, part of being a good COO is actually about storytelling and around actually engagement of people. And actually, I don't think that's so different to really what a good CEO does. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jay Arthur. I wanted to get Jay on. I'm always talking to either authors who've got some theory or, or operators. And Jay is a fabulous operator. She's been the COO or CEO at a number of SaaS businesses that have scaled phenomenally. And I really wanted to talk to her about her latest success, which was a business called Kunify. And she talks about how she joined this business just at the beginning of the pandemic. And she'd never run a remote first business. And so there were three people and no revenue. And over about 18 months, they took it to 70 people and 20 million ARR. So absolutely fantastic success. And those 70 people were West Coast through the Philippines. So a real global business. And the business does teams interconnect. So they found, you know, lots of people found themselves with remote workers on Teams and a phone system, but the phone system and Teams didn't connect. So they just had the perfect product for the perfect moment. And they had a channel model. So they were selling through 888 and uh, Ring Central, some of these other big vendors of VoIP based telephone systems, and being able to connect those directly to Teams for people. They ended up with going from sort of 10,000 seats to a million seats over that period of time. And then they got acquired. So, and Jay's had a fantastic landing at Destiny. She's just taken on a new group role on board position, and she's now their chief transformation officer. So we chat about what did they get right? What did they get wrong? The difference between a COO and a CEO, what she would do differently, what still she think works best in an office or what best, what is best face-to-face. And we've got some fantastic book recommendations at the end, and also a top tip about how to use ChatGPT in a customer experience setting. So I thought it was a fantastic conversation with Jay. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will as well. Hi, 
Hi there, Dom. I'm Jay, and I've known Dom for a while. And I am, or formerly was CEO of a business called Cunify that got acquired by Destiny, um, which is a B2B communications group based in Europe. And just as of Monday, I started as their group chief transformation officer uh, responsible for integrating four or five odd different companies into one Destiny. Jay, I I wanted to chat to you today because when we were last speaking, you were telling me about this journey that you went on with Quinify? Quinify. Yeah. It's a terrible name. I, I was not I was not responsible for the name. <laughs> First thing in branding has to be easy to say. Yes. So <laughs> I, what an absolutely fab journey. So where did it start? And and then we we can talk through because the growth was from really zero to 20 million in 18 months? In terms of revenue, yeah. Just fabulous journey. So how did you end up there as the CEO? And then like, what were you doing that allowed you to then scale this business so quickly? So my background, um, I'm an engineer by background, then I was management consultancy, and then really started a kind of broader entrepreneurial journey. I would kind of think about myself as a B2B SaaS entrepreneur. And in my career, I've now done four or five, done that across a variety of different sectors, you know, across big data, innovation, uh, telco, fintech. So yes, really kind of all about B2B SaaS. And I finished doing one business. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, I was looking at exploring um, what my next one might be. And I was really looking, I'd just come off the back of doing an e-commerce business. And I was really interesting. Whilst I really enjoyed that, I was, I didn't love it. And I didn't love the fact that we were just basically helping more people buy more stuff. And actually, in today's world, I'm not sure we, most people, particularly in the Western world, don't really need more stuff. And actually, I started to think about we as a society have all of these big issues to solve, whether it's health, climate, whatever, and that technology really has a, has a, has a space within that to help solve these problems in a scalable way. So I was kind of looking around at kind of tech for good type options, looking at some health tech options, everything else. And then at the very beginning of the part of the pandemic, my partner uh, passed away. Uh, we were sitting at the kitchen table and at 45, he had a heart attack, did CPR, I didn't, didn't recover. To say I was broken at that point, I think is a, a sort of understatement. Or, or even shocked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I was just... Yeah, that's the type of stuff that happens to other people. So it was a really difficult time, um, particularly very at the beginning of the pandemic, both in terms of just friends, family, even just dealing with the situation was very difficult because at that very early stage, April April 2020, actually the establishment hadn't worked out how to do these processes in a, in a kind of, in a remote way. And even trying to get a death certificate or organise a funeral was really, really difficult. So I guess I'm the sort of person, well, partially because I didn't really know how to deal with it. But anyway, I'm that sort of person where if in doubt, work harder. So, uh, so kind of um, ignore the emotional stuff I can't deal with and find something to do. And I, I think doing another startup at that stage was not something I just was capable of doing. And I was fortunate that uh, somebody that I'd known for many years, a guy called Andrew Barker, who runs a private family office, he approached me and said, Jay, I know your personal situation. I know you're in a difficult place just now, but there's this business over here that has the, it's a, it's a super early stage, but it's super exciting. And there are two technical co-founders and they need someone like you to help make it a success. 
So we had some conversations and in uh, June 2020, so really not that long after Neil passed away, I joined as their CEO. So at that stage, we were uh, four people, uh, the two co-founders, one developer and one new business guy. And yeah, we were had about 10,000 seats on our platform and yeah, pretty much no revenue. And from there, it's sort of June 2020, we then sold the business 18 months ago, so March 22. And is it public what you sold for? No, it's not. It's not. Sorry. <laughs> a good a, a good figure, let's say that. So it's better it's not unfortunately not public. So we sold the business and when we sold the business, we were doing about an ARR of 20 million in that order, mag, order of magnitude. And we had gone from pretty much no seats on the platform uh, through to at that stage, we were about 700,000, something like that. So in, you know, literally, yeah, from June, June 20 to, to March 22, you know, we've done just phenomenal growth. And, you know, and I think, you know, in my time as an entrepreneur, you, it's easy, you sit there, you write your pitch deck and you go, of course, we're a SaaS business. It's going to be this hockey stick growth and give us some money. And it, look, it, look, it's amazing. And actually, in the first time of my career, we actually delivered that. <laughs> and the best thing is that actually we kind of kept going, you know, since we, since we were acquired, you know. Uh, being honest about it, when we were acquired, I wasn't sure I would stay. We didn't have an earnout. We could have walked straight away. We did roll over some of our, our money into, into the shares in the Topco, but we didn't have to stay. And but I thought, you know, obviously for the team and everything that built, I uh, wanted wanted to stay and at least make sure that everything was handed over in a in a kind of proper way. But then actually, I found I, I really liked it. Um, fun environment, great people, and so yeah, over the last eighteen months, kind of just carried on running the business, continued to grow it um, at great speed, and now we're we have well over a million seats, end users in um, one hundred and thirty countries globally, and. We have a fully remote model. That's sort of what was Cunify, now Destiny Automate. And we wouldn't have been able to achieve the growth. I'm absolutely convinced we would have not achieved that growth if we did not have a remote model. I want to pick your brains on the remote model. But you said something in your earlier, earlier on in your sort of description of yourself. You said, I've been CEO and COO of a number of businesses. Now, I've met lots of COOs who probably aren't ever going to be a CEO. And I've met lots of CEOs who, even if their hair was on fire and their life depended on it, couldn't be a COO. So how can you manage to do both? A good question. I think, so to answer obliquely, so my mum and my dad, so my dad's an engineer. My, my, dad's, my dad's an engineer. My mum's my an artist. And I am definitely a product of the two of those in that actually I am analytical, you know, actually the numbers side of it, you know, obviously COO anyway is one of those roles that can mean lots of different things in lots of different places. But I think, you know, COO for me uh, is kind of often has responsibility for a number of different bits of the organization, you know, in terms of the back office stuff. But I think for me, a, a really good COO is somebody who really binds the organization together, the kind of the glue that makes it work. And I think for me, part of being a good COO is actually about storytelling and around actually engagement of people. And actually, I don't think that's so different from my perspective to really what a good CEO does. And actually, I think that, you know, maybe if I... If I look back at it and uh, without wanting to be stereotypical about it, 
I, I don't think I, at the beginning stage of my career, I wasn't confident enough, didn't believe in myself to do the CEO role. And whether that's a female thing, whether that's a me thing, I don't know. But I didn't, I didn't think I could do that. And it's funny because I actually last night I had dinner with a friend of mine who used to be my many years ago when I was COO. And he was just like the guy that we had as CEO. He was like, he was rubbish. He was like, you, sh- you, you should have been CEO. The business would have been so much better if you'd been CEO. But I just didn't have confidence in myself to do it at that point in time. So, you know. But also you're quite gregarious for an engineer. (laughs) Yes. Again, to be stereotypical, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. But actually I wasn't at the start when I was, we know, again, people that know me now don't really believe this, but, you know, at at the start of life, I was quite shy and quite introverted. And I don't know whether it's how I've grown, how I've developed. You know, actually, I'm definitely not like that now. And and actually, I need people around me. And I love working with different people. And I talk about in my team, I have this concept that I call cognitive laddering, which I, I just made it up. I have no idea if that's the proper term. <laughs> it sounds like you should write a book on it, though. It sounds real. Make it a thing. But I, I love, for me, like the best best meetings are you know you have a problem you bring a people set of people together you start off you know I, I would go into the meeting with a perception about what the solution might be and then you have you know this is for me is the importance of diversity in in thought in, so diversity in its broadest sense you know you start off with something and then everyone's like oh well yeah but what if we did this and I like that bit but not that bit and you kind of go through this process where you start off in one place and you you know it just kind of all ladders up and you get to this end point where you didn't think you like it just wasn't even on your horizon when you kind of started in the meeting and like I love like that for me is yeah I love working with people and and being in those situations so where they feed off each other and the energy and the ideas yeah and and actually I think you know for me again CEOs there's lots of different leadership models and lots of different ways you can be a CEO but actually for me being a CEO is you know creating something as a team and providing the direction and, and understanding that I have weaknesses as well, the strengths and, you know, how do we all build something and all move forward that we're, that we're super proud of? Ideally at pace. If that's just interesting patient. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I don't, I don't, I understand the question, but actually I'm not sure I see this. There are some underpinning things within a C for a good COO and a good CEO, I think that are, that do overlap. Okay. Well, and so here you are in the pandemic mm. You couldn't have built this business in an office, even if you'd wanted to. No, exactly. So, and you went from three or four people and no revenue to 70 people and an ARR of 20 million. And so, look, I I was saying to you before we, (laughs) I was saying to you before we pressed record, I know lots of businesses with 70 people who don't have anything written down, but at three or four people, there's nobody to write them down, let alone anything to write down. So what are some of the things you got wrong scaling to 70 people across the world? And I'm sure you made some unavoidable errors because you were moving at moving at pace. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, whether it's remote or in an office, hiring and finding the right people is is always one of those things that is tricky. So we definitely made some uh, wrong hires. What of the seventy? Because it's quite a short space of time. So, like, to get to seventy, how many people did you have to hire? Like a hundred, hundred and fifty? Oh, I see. Um, well, we, we actually, we've had very little churn in terms of for the team. I think there's probably, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I think in terms of levers, and we've maybe had 15, something like that. Relatively low. You're getting it right pretty well. Yeah. And I think we definitely, as 
I think and some of those people are not necessarily wrong hires, but they're people that actually, as we've grown, and I think, you know, an organization always goes through, you know, different kind of steps of maturity. And not everybody wants to go through all of that journey. So there are some people that actually just, you know, we've gone very amicably, but gone different ways. Had the two sort of co-founders and you run fully remote businesses before, or was this? None of us had. No. So this was like, so all of this was your transition from we're used to turning up in an office with a coffee machine into it's all on Zoom. Yeah. Make some stuff up as I went along that sort of felt sensible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that the things we got wrong, and maybe there was a couple of hires at the beginning, was about how intentional we were about the fact that we were remote. And actually, very quickly, we realized that our major, we have a channel model, we realized that our major channel partners were going to be in the US. So actually, having both sales resource in the US and also having uh, sales engineers support resources in the US became pretty key pretty quickly. So I think that we did have a couple of mishires there. And partly that was making sure that people would communicate in the right way and and can can manage with with that kind of uh, quite intense way of communicating, particularly to begin to begin with, and to, to to get up to speed, and that we're comfortable with you know sh- time shifting days to cope with time zones and all of that kind of just practical stuff, and I think that made us really yeah intentional about you know it's not that we just happen to have people in all sorts of different places. It's that, okay if we're going to be a remote organisation, what does that really mean? How does that mean that we manage expectations? Obviously about somebody buying, somebody uh, joining the organisation. How does it mean we onboard them? So actually, until I changed my role on Monday, I still did an induction session with every single new joiner, because actually in terms of this is how we expect you to behave. And this is the psychological contract that, you know, I'm now creating with you about how, you know, what it means to be part of our culture. And actually, you know, particularly for again without being stereotypical like the support engineers you know we telco support engineers they typically tend to be quite introverted you know developers that are quite happy to just sit with their headphones on all day and not put their cameras on and things like that that you know that that's not okay in our culture and we're very clear about actually what the expectations are but that's that's quite a that's quite a time commitment from you to to do that with every new hire but if but you must you must think you get return on your time. Yeah, so I think it sets that expectation really quickly. And it's really interesting now that we're part of the bigger group, we obviously do things in a more formal way around employee engagement and employee satisfaction. And our satisfaction and engagement scores are like the highest in the whole group, even though we're the ones that don't have, you know, we do have FaceTime now, post-pandemic, but only once a quarter. So actually, but so everyone's a bit like, how, how do you get that level of engagement when you guys don't, you know, you don't sit in the same office? And I think it's because we've been very intentional about the way we communicate. So do you, when you go looking for employees, I mean, you talked about the practical, you know, people have got to be prepared, their circumstances must allow them and they've got to be willing to do some time shifting and the communication that you're at, the communication expectation. Are there other things that you do when you're interviewing to try and find people that you think are going to be a good fit in, in a remote only business? Um, I think it is it's about understanding, you know, behaviours and we do talk about our values. We do talk about, you know, I think even the way somebody engages in an interview, because obviously most of the interviews are also remote. So if they can't engage in the interview, then they're clearly not going to be able to engage, you know, after the interview either. 
So I'm not sure we completely kind of codify that in a, you know, they must behave in exactly this way. But as you go through an interview process, you, we definitely have, from a hiring manager perspective, you, know, you get to know whether somebody's going to cope with it or not. What other things have you learnt? That we had to be intentional about it. So actually, you know, so onboard people in the right way to set expectations, but also that then creates a feeling of actually people are really part of the business. You know, if the CEO spends their time talking to you in an induction, actually, you know, you know, and, and for me to be able to do that storytelling of this is why I'm passionate about it and this is why it's cool and this is your part in our journey. Actually, that level of engagement is, well, I think good to have anyway. Like, you know, it wouldn't be a bad thing in any business for a new joiner to have that level of passion from from their CEO. Um, but I think it for me it was necessary in in our business and particularly the pace that we were we were moving at. So intentional about it, we have then started to kind of codify the culture. So to try and make it not just all about me, because to begin with, an awful lot of it was about my energy and, and my storytelling and, and pulling everybody along. And I think we there are some things that we have still not quite got right on that. I think there are some organizations like GitHub, you know, the world's largest, largest remote organization, and the stuff they do to codify the culture and democratize and share that. It's like, I just think it's awesome. And actually, I'd love to get to that point, but we're not at that point today. So something about codifying and being clear about expectations and what that means from a cultural perspective. And so that you codified that as a series of core values and behaviours? So... Yes, but I, I, I think about it almost like a kind of a, a, you know, like an onion. Like it's, it's multi, it's multi-layered or multifaceted. In that, actually, okay, you have to start with that articulation of the values and the, and the behaviours. But I think that we also, particularly over time, started to develop a whole sort of ecosystem then around that. So, and and this again, one of my major learnings was around kind of democratising how to build the culture and to build the engagement. So when Neil passed away, a friend of mine gave me this book, the not business book, called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse um, by a guy called Charlie McKenzie. And it's just a lovely book. And I'd kind of encourage anybody, just as it's just very human. And one of the things the book says is that uh, it talks about kindness. And then it also talks about, you know, what's hard in life. And it sort of says, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to ask for help. And there was one day where I was like, okay, all of this people stuff, all this engagement stuff is is really, really important to me. But there was a million and other one things going on in, in my life and, and taking up my time that I needed to focus on. Everything from preparing for an exit through to, you know, dealing with, you know, when you're dealing, you know, our top 10 clients, you know, are all, you know, stock exchange uh, companies are listed on the, on the stock market in the US. You know, their total market caps in the, you know, billions and billions. So, you know, speaking to them and making sure they're happy was obviously a key part of my role as well. So I got to the point where it's like, I want to do more with this people stuff, but actually I just don't have the bandwidth to do it. So we had, you know, a whole load of Teams channels and uh, on Teams, I just put a note out in our all company kind of chat and just said, okay, I'm, I'm really struggling to do this. Who wants to help? And literally within 30 seconds, I had eight people um, that said, we want to help. And so we then created this thing that we called Wellness Warriors. So it's not like uh, we still don't have an HR function. So this was just people around the business. Um, that, And as it happened, it ended up with different functions. So sales, support, development. And it happened that they ended up in different um, time zones. And most of them weren't uh, line managers um, or involved in you know, the, the management of the business per se. 
And so we created this thing, Wellness Warriors. We kind of, one of the girls who runs our QA team, uh, she'd never done, she'd never ever in her life written a PowerPoint presentation before. I was just like, wow, <laughs> have you got to running our QA team without having never done a, a PowerPoint presentation? And she was just like, I want to learn more about running business. And I was like, okay, you can chair Wellness Warriors. So we created terms of reference and we created the backlog. They started engaging with people around the business about what they felt they needed to stay engaged. And then we yeah, created this program. Obviously, they came to me. We had meetings every month, every fortnight about the things they wanted to do to drive engagement. And that covered everything from kind of democratizing a set of more socially focused channels within our team's environment. So people just can create a channel and they have everything from, so we have like a a music channel. So there's like an ongoing playlist. And so we have different playlists about different themes and everybody just kind of co-creates those. We have one channel where people just post pictures of their dogs. Randomly, a random fact, uh, 85% of my team have dogs. And we only have one cat owner. Uh, and then we've got another guy that every, he collects watches. So every day he just posts a different picture of a different watch. So we just kind of democratized how people engage. Work-based social media. Exactly. And that's just helped people kind of create different bonds across different things. And again, that's just in terms of then. So, yeah, so being intentional about it. And then I think there was that whole realization that in as a business leader, you know, there's a whole lot of things you're supposed to do to be to, to encourage good communication in the business. But actually, half the time, you don't actually do them properly. Actually, we just did a lot of the things that you know you should do and actually did them. So, you know, properly having kind of quarterly business reviews, properly setting objections, objectives, properly cascading them down through the business, um, properly having, you know, we have coffee mornings where people get together and, and don't talk about work, but talk about the social stuff. So I think, yeah, that with that democratization and the, the wellness warriors and the interesting thing is now moving into a group role across, you know, 1,100, 1,200 people, we're now looking at how we roll that out and scale that across a much broader organization going forward. So yeah, that was definitely a cool thing. Fab. And what tool do you use Destiny to manage engagement? Is it something that gives you a third-party benchmark? Yes, we use a tool called Vitamins. It's a Belgian tool. I mean, for me, is it the best tool in the world? Maybe, maybe not. I think that for me, these things are always just tools and it's about the conversation that then, you know, sits around them. I was just thinking, we've got clients who use Friday Pulse. We've got clients who use another large one, sort of enterprise level one, but they both have they say, this is how your team is relative to the company, but they often also say, this is how your company is relative to others. And so, because you said that your team is has a higher level of engagement than the rest of the businesses in the Destiny group, but is that higher than the external benchmarks as well? Uh, I don't know is the short answer. I think the fact that we have, you know, relatively low churn in terms of our employees, you know, and the, the feedback that we get, you know, on a pretty ongoing basis. Are there challenges that you still feel that you haven't solved? You know, if you think back to your time in an office with people, are there some things that you think, uh, we, you know, we've, it's been fabulous, would never have thought to do it, you know, the pandemic forced us to do it like this, but there are things that I still think we you get in an office that you that you haven't been able to? I mean, I think that, you know, the whole whiteboarding thing, that is definitely a thing. And I think that kind of... Even without the cognitive laddering, it's even with, even with that, it's still like, if we were just doing this, 
in person it would be better yeah exactly I, there is definitely something about you know just all standing around a, a whiteboard and you know nicking the pen off each other and drawing a picture and you know that kind of thing I, I do think there is and, and actually I mean that's the good thing for us now is that we we try to to have the best of both worlds and that we do get together you know we do two or three days a quarter where we get everybody together it's still cheap at whole company yeah like the guys that came out so we have two support team uh, members in the philippines they'd never been out the philippines before some of our u.s support team didn't even have passports never yet yeah been there so it's they've never been out of their own state let alone internationally <laughs> yes and you know so getting every, you know, we get everybody together and it's still i mean we couldn't the cost of having not just offices, but just the administration of legal entities in all the different countries we have people in or to, to manage the way we do, we just we just wouldn't be able to do. Do you use a third party service to manage payroll and benefits then? So we use a company called Deal and Deal is basically there's two different ways you can work with them, either as, as you employ contractors through them and they just manage local compliance and, and essentially administer the, the payroll, or you can do what it's called employer of record and really from an HR legislation perspective if somebody's in a substantive role as opposed to just coming and doing a project for you they really like if you think under UK legislation IR35 and all of that then if somebody is really working in a way that is really substantive as a substantive employee then you have to use an employer of record mechanism rather than just a contractor and that is that's what we use deal for yeah so we just manage it all through them and Jay, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? I think, you know, that, as I mentioned earlier, that the kind of asking people for help and actually that humility to go to kind of just say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling, I, I think. And, and actually people, yeah, people step up. And actually when, when you ask for help, they step up. You sometimes get to a, a better place than you would have done if you'd done it yourself. And actually I think it really... You know, everybody talks about, you know, employee empowerment and giving the people space to step up and everything else. And actually, I, th- I think I probably thought I did do that before. But I think actually, because I was at the beginning of this CUNIFI journey, because I was uh, so broken, I had to ask for help. I didn't have a choice. But then actually, as we've gone through that, I just realized actually it's better anyway. It makes my life easier. Uh, and actually probably get to better outcomes. So yeah, should have should have learned it like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> what books should people read, I think? Or, or, what, or what have you found inspirational? Or what were you reading whilst you were lying on a lounge or in Ibiza in the summer or whatever whatever you did for the summer holidays? So I didn't read very much over the summer because the two holidays that I did was to cycle from London to Paris. Difficult to read while you're on a bike. And, and then the second one was a swimming holiday where instead of island hopping by boat, you island hop by swimming. And and we did 25 kilometers in a day. Uh, sorry, not in a day, sorry, in a week. In, and uh, so uh, so also didn't read very much then. So no summer reading. But I think in general, I think for me, on a day-to-day basis, then I tend to find stuff from, I guess, short form content. So podcasts, various different newsletters, things like that, various short form content. And then I think just now as my role has changed, so moving into this group transformation role, and it's super exciting in that we've got these 45 odd different companies that we need to integrate. And actually, we can't even if we choose one of the ways that we're doing it today, actually, we're still going to have to get changed the ways that other people, everybody else does it. So we've got an opportunity to kind of go, act, to really review from a blank piece of paper, you know, what is the right, 
customer experience that we want to provide? What are the right journeys that sit within that? What's the right product set? How do we bundle that? You know, what's the right tech stack that then supports that? And to really reimagine all of that. So kind of how we do that, the teams that sit underneath that and how we all work together to deliver a yeah, awesome differentiating experience in the market. I'm kind of excited about at the moment. So the three books that I've been reading recently. So one is called Team Team Topologies, which is basically how you, it's really around organizational design in particularly tech or, or SaaS businesses. And kind of basically, how do you define your organizational structure based on what needs to be closely coupled versus what needs to clearly be aligned, but can be more loosely coupled? So that's Team Topologies. It's, I have to say, it's um, written by two engineers. Uh, it's not the most exciting read. It's a little dry, but the subject is good. Chat GPT, please summarize Team Topologies in 10 bullet points. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, on Chat GPT, we had a conversation in one of our team socials about how people were using Chat GPT. And one of our support engineers said that he used it every day to take his really techie replies to tickets and said, Chat GPT, please express my import ticket in a way a five year old could understand. Oh, fab. And his ticket resolution times, customer satisfaction, all his scores and everything have gone massively up. And I was like, wow, I love that. Fabulous. And so the trick now is to make that a thing so that everybody does it. So yeah, so team topologies and then other two, the effortless experience by Matthew Dixon. And that for me is really around, yeah, um, I think that some of the metrics like MPS are, I mean, I've never been a massive MPS fan but I think that actually this understanding that is not necessarily a great predictor of churn or ability to upsell. So actually creating effortless experiences so that, you know, is a key to that. So particularly given some of the transformation work that I'm doing at the moment, super interested in that. And then the other one is uh, scaling customer success. Again, you know, I've, I've sort of run SaaS businesses for the last kind of 15, 20 odd years. And I think, you know, in that time, I've seen the sort of thesis around customer success change quite a lot. And I think that, again, if you're working in an environment that's got a sort of modular portfolio where there's upsell pathways that are possible and you want to create that stickiness and improved ARPU and all of those kind of good things, then it comes down to fundamentally how you, not just your sales model, but actually what your customer success model is as well. So yeah, those are my my three three things at the moment. Fabulous. Jay, that's magic. That I might give team topologies a miss, but I, I will go and uh, I, maybe maybe I'll be saved because it's not on Audible, which is which is how I consume most of the books. But effortless experience, I'll go and look at and scaling customer success. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much indeed for coming on. If there's one thing that somebody could do tomorrow, have you got a top tip for somebody? Do something in their business tomorrow, maybe about culture? Be intentional and codify what it is. Codify that intention so that actually as a leader, it's not just about you, but it's about something that then actually your whole organization can actually really live and breathe. But yeah, they can't do that unless you're intentional about it and you really codify it in a way that's clear and that people can live and breathe against. Then they've got guide rails, but they can make their own decisions. Exactly. Right. Jay, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. 
There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.